Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? All right, so today uh, I want to give you a slight head up, a, a slight warning. So one of the fundamental rules, I guess I use that term loosely, of preaching is you're supposed to pick a text and stick with it and preach through it, right? You don't want to preach this huge long text because if you dig into the Bible, it's just full of depth and depth and you won't have time to do it, right? Um, I'm going to slightly bend that rule today. I want to show you all the way through the book of Ephesians, so hope you guys don't have dinner plans. <laughs> kidding, <laughs> kidding. Uh, we, we will be going through more of an overview of the book of Ephesians, but there is a reason that I am bending this rule today. Uh, and, and the reason is, as I was um, praying and studying, figuring out what I wanted to preach on this week, one thing continued to show up in every, everything I did, whether it was with high schoolers who were working through the book of Ephesians ourselves, whether it was through the junior hires who this week we talked about um, how God created human beings to be relational, communal people, how the fall affected that, and how Jesus redeems every relationship. Or even today in Sunday school, we, were, we had a verse um, from the book of Ephesians talking about how we're supposed to live in this body of Christ. And so we kept coming back to this book, uh, and it's for a reason. As we look at the book of Ephesians, it's actually an interesting letter. Uh, most of the letters that the Holy Spirit gave through the various people, especially Paul, um, tend to be what we would call situational. So they were either addressing particular situational sins or false teachings within the church. Um, but Ephesians is actually different. So it was written by Paul when he was in prison, uh, and most likely his last prison sentence. So one of those letters written shortly before he was killed right? Um, but it is not actually written to a specific situation. Instead, what Paul, uh, sorry, the Holy Spirit through Paul does is paint this picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus within a fallen world, right? And it may surprise us who, who come from a more individualistic culture like America uh, that the picture that is painted is all about the church. Yes, the universal church he talks about a lot, but more specifically, the local church. And the reason for that is there's no following Jesus outside the church, and there's no experiencing the universal church outside of the local church. That's where we, as followers of Jesus, experience this new family and this new body. So uh, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, paints this picture throughout the book of Ephesians. And I hope to go through some specific texts and show you what does it mean to follow Jesus within a fallen world. So as I, as I um, paint this picture for you guys, one thing that I want you to keep in mind is that, yes, this is going to sound aspirational, but no, it is not impossible this is not a, a picture of the end times when Jesus returns and makes everything right. Uh, it has plenty of that throughout the New Testament. This is a picture of what it means right now for us as followers of Jesus in a local church in the midst of a broken, uh, sinful world, okay? Uh, the second thing that I'm going to ask you, uh, you'll know, uh, we'll notice that in one of Paul's letters, he encourages this group of people called the Bereans. Now, the Bereans, he noted because every time Paul would teach or preach, they would go back to the scripture and make sure what Paul was saying was right. 
Now, if we were Paul, our temptation would be like, who do these Bereans think they are? They don't have my training. They haven't had God, Jesus, show up in a vision to them, give them a command. Who are they fact-checking me uh, when I preach to them? But that's not what Paul does. Instead, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, encourages them and says, everyone should be like the Bereans. So what I want you to do this week um, is read through this book of Ephesians. We won't have time to read through all of it today, but you guys, if you just look, it's a very short letter, and I actually timed it for you. If you listen to it, depending on who's actually doing the reading, it's less than 20 minutes to get through the book of Ephesians. It is very doable for everyone here. So go through the book of Ephesians this week, chew on it, meditate on it, and make sure what I'm preaching to you is what the Holy Spirit is teaching and not just Josh. We don't need what Josh is teaching. It wouldn't be that great, I promise you. Um, but we do need what the Holy Spirit is showing us through the book of Ephesians. So with that, um, I am going to pray and then we're going to dive right in. Oh, um, also children, if you're still here, you are dismissed to Children's Church. So almost forgot that. All right, I'll pray. Father, thank you so much for this gathering and this great gift you gave us through your, your new family, this church. Uh, I pray that you would guide us as we dig into your word together, um, that you would show us how you would have us to live, and that your spirit would work in our hearts to transform us more and more into this picture you painted for us. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we dig into the book of Ephesians, it is interesting to note that the first half of the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul is actually just laying the groundwork. He doesn't actually start talking about how Christians are supposed to relate to each other. Instead, uh, what he does is he lays the foundation for why we are both secure and blessed and empowered to live this way. Uh, so I want to read just a small section from you, and this comes from the first chapter uh, and it's just going to be verses 3 uh, through 14. So it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. One of the fundamental uh, truths about human psychology is people who have not been loved well themselves do not know how to love other people well. 
Each of us has this fundamental need to be loved fully and completely and perfectly. The problem is no human being can do that. We have this need that only God can fill. And until that need is filled, we aren't actually even capable of loving, at least not loving the way that is painted in the New Testament. But once we have Jesus fully and completely and perfectly love us, and once we've been empowered by his spirit, we are given the ability to love. And so what this is saying right here is that we are secure in Jesus. Look at that. Not only are, have you been adopted, but even before the foundation of the world, those who God would call to be his children, he predestined them. He called them out. You have been secure from eternity past to eternity forward if you are a follower of Jesus. Nothing can change that. In Jesus, when he came to die for all of your sins, this is God himself who came in the human flesh to die for all of our sins. A lot of times we think, yes, he forgave my sins, but man, then I really screwed things up, right? Jesus, when he died, died for all of your sins. Not just the ones that you would commit before you meet him, but all sins that you would continue to do throughout your life. Yes, he calls you away from him because sin is destructive, but he knew what you would do and he chose to die for you anyways. The foundation for this new family starts firstly in completely through Jesus, right? As we see that, we see that it is through Jesus that we receive the security and this blessing and this love. And it is in Jesus, when we come into this new family, it is when we are in there that we receive this love. And not only that, we also see it is because of Jesus. Why does God forgive us? Why does he adopt us? It says, for the glory of his son, Jesus. So that we have received every blessing and every empowerment and every security in Jesus, through Jesus, and because of Jesus. We have to start here with the letter because this is the foundation for everything else. When we talk about this new family and what it means to live a Christian life now, we can't talk about it unless we realize that everything else stems from unconditional, incredible grace. All who have repented of their sins and have followed Jesus have received this grace, and everything else is built on that. It's nothing of our own. It is all a gift of grace. And because of that gift of grace, it says, before we met Jesus, we were dead. As you continue to trace this line of thought, it says that we, we weren't just away from God. We weren't just sick. It said we were actually dead. And dead people, I don't know if you know this, can't do anything. <laughs> they are dead. And that is what Jesus says of our spiritual condition. Not just that we were far away from him, that we were sick, that we, it would be really tough to make things right, but we were dead and completely incapable of returning to life. But because of Jesus and because of the power of God, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead can raise us to life. And because of that, we, if we are followers of Jesus, are a new people. This is where the line of thought continues to flow. So in chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, it says this, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's a lot in this verse that I want to unpack for you. Basically, what the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul here is that you are new. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are new. And he gives several um, illustrations to communicate that. The first one is you are a new people. So during this time, there's obviously this hard conflict between new Gentile believers and Jewish background believers. And what God is saying is they're not two different things. You are now one new people in Jesus. Now, we don't struggle with the same problem that they had back in, but we still struggle with this. Uh, We each like to hang out with and get along with people who are like us, whether it is the same background, culture, race, language, activities, personality. It doesn't matter. We feel most comfortable with those around us, but what Jesus is doing here is he's destroying all barriers that keep us apart and has united us into one people, right? Now, one of the things I worry about, when we, when we do ministry sometimes as a church, we'll break off into what are called affinity groups, where we will study the Bible with people who have the same interests in us, same stage of life in us, same gender as, as us, and those are good and have a place, Um, But oftentimes what I worry about is that if that is our only experience of the church, we're missing out in the fullness of what the church means. And the fullness is that God takes every person from every background of every race and language, tribe and tongue and personality and those who like fishing and those who are vegetarians, right? Republican and Democrat, East Coast and West Coast. He takes them and puts them in one body. And yes, it's going to be messy at first, but that's the beauty. In the mess is where Jesus begins to sanctify us. In the mess is where Jesus begins to transform us. Uh, One thing I found too, uh, I don't know if this is true of you, but I'm going to suggest it probably is. A lot of times when I have most trouble getting along with people in the body of Christ, Over time, what Jesus shows me is it's not because of anything on them. It's because of uh, own sin and flaw in my own life that he is grinding out of me. As he sanctifies us, as he makes him more like his son Jesus, who accepts all people, those who come to him. This is the vision for the church. We don't get to separate and do our own thing. We are one body together. Now, one of the being the person who works with children and youth and families, Uh, one of the areas I see this most pop up is this generational gap. It's interesting, too, because you talk with both uh, older adults and younger uh, adults and kids and students. There's this perceived um, attitude where it's like, man, these old people don't want to hang out with us. And from the older people, man, these young people, they don't want to be with us. They don't want to listen to what we have to say. Both of them have the same idea. Who told you that, all right? Besides your own kids, they don't count. That's a different circumstance. (laughs) But who told you that? Yes, maybe that is true some of the time, but what I've found from experience over and over again is that people from different generations would love for someone to reach out to them, whether older or whether younger, and to just show you care, to listen to them and to be listened to 
by them. And guess what? If you don't feel like your gifting is kids or youth ministry, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to be a youth leader or kids leader, but guess what? If they're in the body of Jesus, they're your family, and we don't get to separate them because we feel awkward around them. All right? That's not how God's family works. We are one body together. He continues tracing this theme on. Uh, and so this is actually um, the theme for this year for the youth. Uh, our verse, it comes from these verses right here. He says, uh, speaking about this church that God is designing, he says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful scenes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I encourage you guys to memorize this this week and chew on it because the picture painted here is so incredibly compelling. What he's saying here is these prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, the shepherds, those who God has placed in leadership over the church, they are to train up the saints. Now, who are the saints? Um, the saints are all of you if you are a follower of Jesus. That's the way the Bible uses the term. It's not just uh, some long-dead person that we burn candles to, okay? As Protestants, we don't do that at all, but that's not what saints are. Saints are any follower and disciple of Jesus, and so we as leaders, it is not our role in leadership to do the work of ministry. Now, as Christians it is, but in leaders, we are to train you all to do the work of the ministry together. In other words, how does the Great Commission get accomplished? How does the work of the church get accomplished? By all of us. It is not the job of a pastor, an elder, a deacon, or any leader in the church. It is all followers of Jesus working together with their different giftings and their unique callings to fully reach the world around us. That is what the role of the church is. That is the beauty of it. But not only just reach the world around us, look at the phrasing it has here. Uh, from, so speaking of Jesus, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. So we are one body whose head is Jesus, knitted together with the ligaments held together in Jesus. When every single one of us, when every part is working properly, what is the result? Jesus makes the body grow so that we build ourselves up in love. So what is the church look like in the midst of a fallen world where we love each other well and when we are doing that we help each other grow and mature and strengthen until we what does it say until we reach the full measure and stature of the son of god <laughs> when is that by the way 
no time in this lifetime, which means we never outgrow the church, but that's the end goal. The end goal is that each of us become transformed more and more and more until we begin to look like God's only begotten Son, Jesus. And all of our actions and thoughts and all of our attitudes and every way we begin to resemble Jesus. And when we do that on earth, one of the crazy things that is constantly just kind of being repeated throughout the New Testament, if you read it closely, is this idea that how will the world know who Jesus is? He says, by how my followers, my church, love each other. Think about that statement for a second. The world knows who Jesus is by how we as Christians love each other. Now, sometimes that might be hard to believe, uh, especially when you're struggling with other people who are difficult to love within the same body, right? That might be hard to believe. But if we look at history, the reason that Christianity exploded throughout the Roman Empire, even though it was constantly being critiqued as only being a religion for the, the slaves, the women, and the children, not being relevant to the those in high society. The reason it exploded is because those within the body of Christ loved each other so well, and those who were outside it wanted that. They saw how Christians loved each other, and it's like, I need that in my life somehow. I know many Christians who didn't become followers of Jesus until adulthood, um, and their story is almost always the same. They had Christian friends they wanted to hang out with those Christian friends because they saw how well and how forgiving and how grace-filled they are with each other. And so even though they didn't really like the whole Jesus and Bible thing, they would hang out with them more and more. And then all of a sudden they didn't know how. They started to actually believe uh, the gospel that their friends were pointing them to. They started to believe in this Jesus. Why? Because we are the body of Jesus on the earth, and they began to experience his love and his forgiveness through us. That is the call of this new family. That is what we are called to, all people working together within the church, loving each other, building each other up into full maturity, into fullness and stature of Jesus himself. But it's interesting, because that's not where it stops. Jesus gives us a new family, right? Where he is our brother and through and in and because of him we've been adopted by the Father, God, the only perfect Father there's ever been. And he did this because he knew we would need it. Uh, if you look at Christianity throughout the world and throughout time, one of the things that inevitably happens in most cultures is when you become a Christian, you have to leave your family. They don't accept it at first. Eventually, with God's grace, they can be won over, but most of the time, they are disowned by their family. Even throughout the world, many people have been not only disowned, but sometimes kidnapped, uh, beaten, occasionally even killed because their family did not want them to turn to Jesus. It is a reality. And so God, in his kindness and his graciousness, gives us a new family one who loves Jesus and loves us well, and who, when our old family, who hasn't yet accepted Jesus, kicks us out, we have this new family because it is needed. We as human beings are not made to exist independently. You see, even in creation, uh, you look at Adam by himself with God. Even before sin, God said, it is not good for you to be alone, Adam. And so he gave him Eve. Human beings are not to exist 
meant to exist in isolation, so he gives us this new family where we learn to grow in our love and our dependence upon each other, which may sound weird for um, more independent countries like ourselves. That doesn't take away our personal responsibility, but it does say in the scripture that as we grow in love, we also grow in our dependence upon each other because no one person, no one human being has all the gifts and all that we need. We have to rely upon each other. But not only that, he doesn't just cast out the old family union to give us a new one. He actually redeems the old family. So if we look in Genesis, one of the consequences of the fall, we can trace it down. We saw it between husband and wife. We saw it from the curse that the, um, the wife's desire would be contrary to her husband, uh, but her husband would rule over her. We saw because of the fall, this conflict come between men and women that has lasted through the ages between man and wife. The sin and the fall ruined that relationship. Not only that, it ruined the relationship between brother and brother. The very first brothers, one end up murdering the other. Sin destroys every single relationship we have. It soaks in and corrupts even the best of our relationships, even the best of our friendships, even the those we love the most have become corrupted by the fall and they become self-serving and selfish. We don't love people to love them anymore. We love them because they give us something, even in our best relationships. But Jesus not only gives us a new family that is founded on his full and perfect love, but he also redeems the old one. As we continue tracing through Ephesians, what we'll see at the end of it is the Holy Spirit through Paul begins to um, teach the believers how are they supposed to live as Christians among these relationships. So let me read that to you. This is going to be a longer section of Scripture, um, but I think that it is important. So starting all the way back in um, verse 5, or sorry, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 15, it says this. Look carefully then. So after all this buildup and all this foundation for this new family, this new body in Jesus, he says, okay, this is how you live. It's interesting, only the last couple chapters, all foundation on the gospel first, and then he's saying, now this is how you should live. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not foolish, be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's where it begins. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the foundation for all of these relationship dynamics to come starts with this. Submit to one another out of our love for Jesus. All our relationships from here on out are no longer self-serving, but for the other person to love them because of, not for them, their sakes in and of themselves, but for the sake of Jesus who loved us first and who loves each of these people around us. It says that. So submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the church, wife, Um, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, it's interesting uh, and telling when people quote this verse and that's where they stop. If anyone ever does that, tell them to keep reading because this is what it says next. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. How are husbands supposed to love their wives? Like Jesus did. And until you get to that point, keep going. Until you have willing to lay down your life and not just die, um, not just die for your wife, but to lay down your whole life. Think about this. Jesus laid down his divine prerogative. He was God. He is God, but he became a human being. He submitted to the limits of humanity for our sake. That's how much he loved his bride, the church. That's how much he loved us and us, uh, our husbands, that's how much you should love your wife. Which means this, it means not only being, being willing to lay down your life for her, but all of your love and all of your life is meant to serve your wife because of Jesus and for Jesus' sake, right? So this, this image that he's painting is one of mutual submission for the sake of Jesus, where each is loving to the other, submitting to the other out of humility and love towards Jesus. So as we keep going, in that same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and shares it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So how, remember what I said about how the love we show for each other within the body of Christ reflects to Jesus? This is one way that it does that. When people see your marriages, are they seeing how Jesus loves his church? That should be the question for each married person here, and I feel fully great saying that as a single person, I know. <laughs> but I'm not giving you this as Josh. I'm giving you this from Ephesians, right? What God is asking you as husbands and wife to do is to love each other so much that when people see you, they see Jesus, they see his love and forgiveness and grace. And that continues for all of our relationship as we go on. Um, and we skip ahead a little bit to how children and parents should relate. So children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So children, how do you be a witness to your friends around you. Well, right here in Ephesians, one of the ways it's saying is by honoring your father and mother and loving them. So when people look at you and they say the strange way that you relate to your parents, what they see is the love of Jesus. That is what it's asking us to do as children. It's interesting. These letters were, read, were read to the whole church. They were read with children there. The 
Holy Spirit is speaking directly to all of his people, even those people who aren't yet adults. And so what is he saying to you? How do you show the love of Jesus to those around you? Honor your parents. And then it goes on. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents, how do you be a witness to the world around you of the love of Jesus? By how you treat your children. By treating them with grace and with patience as you disciple them into mature followers of Christ. That is the call, and it is a high call, and it is a difficult call. But I want to remind you again that not only is God redeeming the family dynamics here, but he has first placed us in a new family. Sometimes this command may feel impossible for you, uh, especially the do not (laughs) provoke your children to anger, and they're provoking you to anger first. I get that. It's difficult. But he didn't call you to do it by yourselves. You as parents are the primary disciplers of your children, but you're not meant to do it alone. You are in a new family. There are men and women around you who've gone that route before you and can help you. There are those who are doing it at the same time as you and they can encourage you and pray with you. And there's who, those of us who aren't in that stage right now and we can still help and we can still pray for you as well. This is a community project. Yes, you are the primary disciplers within the context of a local church. Don't try to bear that burden alone. It's too much to disciple a child up to the fullness of the stature of Christ. But by God's grace, with God's new family, it is possible. So fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So here's the question for you, parents. Are you discipling your children? Are you reading the Bible with them each week? Are you teaching them from it? Do you need help with that? There are plenty of wiser and older men and women in the church who can help you in this process as well. But this is the call. And then it talks about bond servants and masters. Now, a slight pause here. Um, one of the critiques that Christianity sometimes gets leveled is, is the way that it treats slavery in the Bible. Uh, and, and the usual apologetic approach is just saying that slavery back then in the Roman Empire was different um, than it was during the Civil War time. And that might be true, but it's not really a satisfying answer because it's like saying, yes, murder is more evil than randomly punching a stranger in the face. That doesn't make punching someone in the face okay, right? That doesn't make slavery okay somehow. The, the thought that you can own another person is wrong. It is evil. It is part of the fall. But what we have to understand about the Bible is what I said earlier One of the critiques against Christianity was that they believed it was the religion of who? The slaves, the women, the children. So yes, if the Bible was written primarily to slave owners, you would expect it to call them out for that. But when it's written to those who are oppressed, those who are underneath this wrong and this evil, it has a slightly different message. And I think it's even more revolutionary. Because what it's saying is, even if they say on this earth that you are owned by someone, you are free in Jesus. And this is common throughout the New Testament, but this idea when it's addressing slaves is that, yeah, they claim to own you, but you know who your actual master in heaven is, and that is who you serve. And then when it addresses 
the masters in the relationship, it says, listen, this is your brother, which is already revolutionary. This is an heir of God himself, and you yourselves have a master that you answer to. And so the end result, it's crazy when you study the history of the church, the end result is you had churches where slaves were the elders in a church where their newly converted masters became Christians submitting to their eldership. You can't have slavery exist for long in that environment, and in fact, it begins to die out. And in fact, when you look at the history of slavery and like been accepted for all of history, why suddenly this push towards abolition? It's not because humanity suddenly got better all of a sudden. It's because these Christian nations found themselves at, at this dichotomy where they could no longer support the idea of owning another person who is made in the image of God himself. And so that is what eventually topples this evil institution in the end, right? Um, but with that going on, can we still apply this, even though none of us are slaves, are slave owners, right? And if you are, we will have to report you later to the, the police. But um, as we, so that was a bad joke. I apologize. <laughs> but what we can take in is the, the worker and the boss relationship, right? What we can't say is when we work, wherever we work, however we work, we work for God and his glory, which means even the jobs that seem to suck the energy out of us have dignity because we are doing them for God. Even the jobs where our coworkers seem to be lazy and our bosses seem to be incompetent, we do them well without complaining, with joy. We are bearing witness to the love of Jesus. Why? Because they see that there's something different in us. We're not just doing it for a paycheck. We're not just doing it to do it. We're doing it for something greater. And that something greater is we are working for Jesus. All jobs, all jobs, if they are not immoral, have inherent dignity and value for Christians because we are working for God. So as we see is that in this new family, this new dynamic, Jesus has transformed every relationship that we are in. And he is transforming us. So the question is, how does that change us? How does that change the way we go about our week and interact with those around us? And what I want you to do is spend time as you chew through Ephesians this week thinking about that. How can we more reflect Jesus in our relationships? How can we go out of our way to love people? Not just when they come to us, but how can we reach out to those around us in the body of Christ to show them love, to help grow each other up into maturity, to use all of who we are, all of our personality and our giftings and our strengths, bring them into this new body and this new family, work together for each person's benefit. Why? So that we can show the love that Jesus had for us. With that thought, I am going to close us um, in prayer, and then we'll continue in our worship together. Father, I want to thank you um, for this new family that your son Jesus has bought for us. I pray that we do not take it for granted, but that we would enter into it fully because we know that this is the way and the means that your spirit works at transforming our hearts and our minds and our lives. Pray that we enter into this family, that we submit to one, each other, uh, one another out of love for your son, and in that process we are transformed into the image of that same son. Amen.